You are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. Uh, so, hi, we're, we're um, uh, contributing to the podcast series today uh, from the perspective of looking at issues surrounding families where a parent has mental health challenges. Um, and for all of us, this is our research area in one way or another from different countries around the world. Um, and we're going to try and think about issues that we think people who work with families with children, whether criminal justice and other services around them should be aware of and, and should start to take account of when um, when thinking about um, support and the, and the needs and challenges for these families. Um, so I'll start with some introductions. I'm Scott Yates. I'm Associate Professor in Psychology at Montfort University um, in the UK. And uh, uh, jo- Joanne, would you like to start? Sure. Hi, um, I'm Joanne Nicholson. I'm a psychologist by uh, background and training, and I'm a professor on the faculty of the Heller School at Brandeis University outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Brenda? Yeah, thank you. Hi, I'm Brenda Gladstone. I'm an associate professor in the social and behavioral health sciences um, at the University of Toronto in Toronto. Um, and I also run a research center for uh, qualitative, critical qualitative health research. So we work with people quite directly uh, in observing and talking to them and doing all kinds of arts-based work with them. So uh, we have a specialty program in that. Thanks. Thanks. And I'm Rochelle Hine. I'm a social worker by discipline and background, and I'm employed by Monash Rural Health, uh, which is a a school within Monash University in Australia, and I'm located in Gippsland in Victoria, in a rural um, township. My research is, is um, as, as Scott introduced, around families where a parent has a mental illness and creating um, more equitable health systems, um, including anti-racist practice. Thanks. So, yeah, there's, there's a kind of a thing we're coming in at this kind of there's a sense of a kind of critical and growing awareness of the issues that we're going to be talking about. And um, we, I think we're lucky to have two people here, Joanne and Brenda, have been working on this and, and kind of getting the groundswell of kind of awareness going um, around kind of parental mental health challenges and issues for families. Um, and there's a sense that we're starting to see that this is a significant issue around public health and for services and kind of awareness of the challenges. So I, I kind of normally start to think about the, the, the incidences. And Joanne, I know you did some work on this, didn't you, in terms of trying to track the incidents? Um, and we, you know, we see really high levels of um, uh, patients in mental health services who are parents and and children who have parents when they're presenting the services. Oh, you're you're muted, Joanne. <laughs> because I've never done virtual communication. <laughs> <laughs> well, there I've taken care of it. I am the one person who forgets to unmute my mic. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Uh, you know, it's, I think we've looked at prevalence across countries. Um, there have been studies in Australia, Norway, uh, the U.S. Um, and in the from the U.S. perspective, which is obviously what I represent, um, we believe that people with well, people in the United States, we generally use it like twenty percent of people over the course of their lifetime will have an experience of a mental health or behavioral health condition and um, that the prevalence of parenthood among those individuals is the same as the prevalence of parenthood among all individuals. And so 
um, maybe decades ago when it was more common for people to be institutionalized for all their lives. Maybe parenthood was less of a uh, um, an option, um, but certainly these days in in our community-based service orientation to things, um, people with behavioral health conditions in the U.S. are just as likely uh, to be parents as other people. Yeah, so yeah, we, we, we've kind of um, also done done work in the UK trying to audit some some services in the mental in mental health services in our region and noted yeah, somewhere very similar figures to I think some of what you what the ones that you were talking about in the US, Joanne, have kind of somewhere like in the high 50s, 58, 50, 55, 59 percent of children who present to child mental health services having parents with um, a mental health difficulty and parents who present to adult mental health services having dependent children at home, which services aren't always picking up, um, but which but which which are, are issues for them. Um and I don't know if there's any context from from Canada and Australia as well around around these these kind of growing awareness. Yeah, well, I think um, Daryl Mabry and his team in Australia found that around a third of all adults who are accessing clinical mental health services in Australia were parents of children under the age of eighteen. So that's equates to about a million children in Australia. Mm. Yeah, so. in, terms of can in terms of Canada, I think that um, it's actually shameful that we don't really have these figures. I think we can <clears throat> estimate they're probably similar to the countries you're talking about. I mean, there was a study in 2009 that estimated 12% of children under 12. So it was under 12. So in terms of thinking even what, how do we measure this category of persons that we call children, even if we take it to 18, that figure is grossly uh, underreported. So um so I think that's uh, I think that's really a problem, and so Canada doesn't have those numbers, um, but I imagine that they're quite similar to what you're reporting. Yeah. If I could add, Scott, you know, I think that each of us are talking about data, and each of our countries have accumulated data that can be interpreted differently depending upon which door you walk through. So if you take a population of people who are already known to be patients or people. Living with mental health conditions, you might get a slightly different number from if you looked at the general population. It's all about the denominator in these in these data. But I think the most important message, probably when you look across these data, is that it's quite likely over the course of a person's lifetime that they will be faced with a behavioral health challenge. And it's quite likely that they will be parents. Mm -hmm. and it's likely, therefore, that their children depending upon the age of illness onset or the age when when troubles emerge, it's quite likely that children will um, live with people with mental health conditions. The message being that we should be supporting parents in general <laughs> and children in general around mental health issues, uh, particularly post-pandemic when all of these things have you know emerged more as people have been isolated and sheltered and um, limited in their social contact. So I think regardless of how you slice the data pie, uh, these are important issues for many, many families. Yeah, I think and I, I think around that as well is the what, what always strikes me when I look at the research in this area and, and reflects on what we've learned as well is the, the level of complexity there is around this as well and the number of overlapping issues. I know Adrian Falkov, who we, 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 we all know, would um, 
uh, try to conceptualize this as a, as a as a kind of spectrum of need where, you know, you have just knowing that data on its own doesn't actually tell you the whole story. It's, it shows you the, the the prevalence of these kind of issues. But you have within that families who are, who are facing a complex set of intercepting issues, but but managing to cope even when there's mental health challenges with a parent, ones who could need some support probably to, 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 to help um, kind of with the stresses of lives and with managing kind of their mental health needs. And then as you, you know, you do get towards the more severe end where, you know, quite families face many, many more severe difficulties in attending to the needs and well-being of their children. And this exists in the complexity of a whole set of other factors that are going on around families of stigma and inequality and racism and poverty and job loss and benefits and and all of the other things and that you you always kind of encounter these problems not simply as a mental health problem residing in a parent or a child but it's a massive complexity of issues so it's, i think moving from those data which are quite you know that they, they paint a figure but i think you're right right joanne you know we need to think actually they beyond that picture there's there's kind of a lot going on for the families that we're kind of talking about. So if I could just jump in there, I think one of the things, and this is maybe jumping ahead, but one of the reasons might be that parents and children and families still don't want to talk about this, right? So it's very hard for them to come or to choose to come to the attention of, of the public or of services because of the um, issues that we know around keeping the family secret um, you know, being afraid, you know, issues to do with stigma that uh, and particularly stigma in systems like education, the law, that kind of thing that that keep families from being able to seek help, which we saw in the review we did on stigma with Andrew, Andrea Rupert and colleagues, you know. So I think that's something worth talking about. What's the kind of nature and origins of the kind of invisibility that often gets talked about for families and for me in particular, because I work with children. You know, there's a certain assumption that they're invisible and yet they've been in front of us all along. So I think there's really interesting issues to talk about around that that idea. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that as we're starting to talk about, you know, these numbers and what they represent and why or why we don't know what they mean, their meaningfulness. Yeah. And, and those um, stigmatizing attitudes are prevalent in lots of different domains in society and they actually lead to um, discrimination as well, don't yeah. they? And and we know that um, one of the, the things that, one of the factors that is such a disincentive for parents to seek help and to talk about the challenges they're experiencing is because of the high levels of child protection notifications and, um, and child removal subsequently. So that risk lens is, um, pervades Kind of a more of a nuanced um, individual kind of look at families and their and their um, strengths, resources, as well as their challenges. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's very real. I, yeah, that I'm I'm struck by whenever I kind of present these issues to services or to anyone we're delivering training or information to is this to have this kind of manifest in things like um, things that services want to be aware of like young carers particularly when you're talking about schools and youth services and how difficult it is actually to get accurate estimations of the number of young carers who are caring for a parent with a with a with a mental health issue and I think yeah partly sometimes this can be I think because they don't recognize themselves as young carers for a variety of reasons because mental illness mental health challenges are cyclical and and you know that they, 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 yeah so young caring responsibilities for these for these young carers will be 
um, less consistent and less stable uh, than for the, the population of people who might recognise themselves as young carers. And also, there's th- there is all this stigma, isn't there, around families that there's that fear of services, the fear of families being broken up and the sense of shame and an internalisation of um, kind of um, negative self-images for, for parents and families and that kind of that drive to hide the fact that there are these issues from, from yeah. schools, from services as well. I think the other thing, though, Scott, is that, you know, young caring research has been going on in the UK where you are for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Young caring research is very nascent in Canada, and I suspect probably also, I don't can't speak for the US, but I'm assuming that that's not a as broad or as a uh, well-established program of research as it is in the UK. So we have to ask ourselves why. Why is young caring so offensive to people? The notion that a child, because I think there's ideological work going on here. Uh, when I first started doing my work with kids, you know, children who cared for parents were considered parentified. So already it was seen as a, it was labeled in a pejorative way. So that if you're caring for a parent, somehow you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing as a child, right? So there's this notion that you were somehow contravening norms of child-parent relations. Um, and so therefore, it's another way to sort of hide not only that labor, but the need for support in that labor that children might be providing and contributing to the family to the family uh, situation. So I think the whole young caring thing is really interesting um, as to why some countries may have developed work and services around that and others not. And I think some of it is cultural and ideological as well. So you get ideas about lost childhoods, you know, so this assumption that childhood's supposed to be this particular kind of a thing. And anybody who doesn't have that kind of childhood is having a deficit, has a deficit childhood. And I and I think that's really problematic. And then another another source of, you know, I don't know if stigma is the right word for it, but there's something stigmatizing around contravening those norms. I think if I could just say, Brenda, that's that's one of the benefits of the work, Brenda, that you have done is that you have shown in your work that there can be positive aspects of family caregiving for children as well as negative or burdensome aspects. And, yep. and it actually is where the work runs right into Rochelle's work, intersects with Rochelle's work, because when you factor in, as Scott points out, when you factor in the cultural expectations, different cultural groups have different expectations about who's taking care of whom in families yeah. and what's what's appropriate or good or right. Um, and so we need to pay attention to those cultural issues as well. I also want to make a pitch for what I'll call old carers <laughs> because, you know, these issues are lifespan yeah. uh, issues and... We have um, in our system many times a lot of older uh, persons being served whose adult children are quite concerned about them. And in the U.S., we've had uh, an active adult children of parents with mental illness, um, a number of initiatives, Facebook groups, peer support, you know, informal uh, peer support networks developing for adult children whose parents uh, have uh, mental health conditions. So I just want to make the developmental pitch as well as the cultural pitch for these issues. That's really important. I think that I think the cultural thing of where we also run into expectations within a society and a culture and also within services that, that children and families relate to. Um, so there may be expectations that conflict with the reality of caregiving. 
um, uh, you know, and and the, the delicate nature of that, and the and the stigmatized nature of that, um, and, and the hidden nature of that can, I think, you know, we see evidence in some of the work we do in the UK of that setting up quite kind of patterns of conflict with services that are really supposed to be there to support children and family. I'm thinking, you know, largely we we see this quite a lot in schools. Um, you know, we, there's a, a kind of a in in the UK, this kind of there's a, a rise of pastoral care type roles within schools whose I think the ideal is that we we have these people to support the needs and the and the challenges in terms of emotional and mental health of the children in schools but we also have schools as institutions which demand particular things from young people in terms of attainment and attendance and particular types of behavior and the kind of challenges and demands that some of the that the children and young people who we're talking about have can conflict with that and you know we see quite often this kind of cycle of conflict set up where these things are interpreted as disciplinary issues um within within school environments and then you get this kind of negative cycle of um of a kind of um a, a lack of support and then you know uh um schools also then perhaps inadvertently, but nevertheless re-stigmatizing or further stigmatizing parents and the family family arrangements and family relationships as well. So the, the kind of configuration of social, cultural and institutional demands and patterns around is, is, a, is, is a, again, it's also a really complex issue. We could riff a little bit too, Scott, on the issues that you raised before about social determinants of health or health-related social needs. I know different countries obviously have different health systems, different payment systems for services. Um, and in the U.S., I can say that you know poverty, uh, housing instability, food instability, all of these, uh, what we, I guess, consider social needs are obviously related to how well a family does and how well parents and children do together. And so um, we, we have this sort of joke in the U.S. It's not very funny, but, you know, wealthy people never end up in our child welfare system. It's poor people who end up in our child welfare system. And we our joke is like wealthy people send their kids to boarding school <laughs> something. You know, they can they have options of summer camps and and schools that are perhaps are better resourced. I think the the important point here is about resources and family resources. And to the extent that a family has limited resources, they're much more likely to have um, outcomes undermined by these um, health related social needs. Yeah, I think that's a, there's a lot to consider as well around. Um, yeah, the way that services are then set up to address problems in families are kind of around that. You're kind of, you, you know, we, we talk about, yes, you identify a particular subset of families within a society that are potentially problematic and whose needs need to be maybe not so much supported and nurtured, but addressed and uh, as, as a potential social problem. Um, we certainly see that, I think, a lot in in, in the UK. There's, again, a, a plethora of services that, that deal with the problems that parents and children generate. You know, we have the we had a program called the Troubled Families Program, which was, you know, specifically set up with this idea that there is this certain variable and ever inflating number of families who are 
problematic in terms of causing problems for society, costing the public money because of their negative outcomes and lots of individual services working on, you know, this one will be child behaviour because your child's not behaving. This one will be school attendance because they're attending. This one will be um, a, a kind of drug and alcohol issue. This one will, you know, and that there's that kind of multiplication, I think, of, of, of services that target various aspects of families' lives as problems. Um, we certainly have a lot of it. I, I, I imagine there's similar pictures in, in 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 the other countries that we're representing as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, this is interesting. Oh, sorry, Rochelle, you go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say, and often the response from those services is quite punitive as well. Um, and often these families, particularly, I know around the perinatal um, time when when women are pregnant and looking forward with optimism to the birth and to the the future of their family and they're in a in a um transition time where they're really open to help seeking and they're really um motivated to change um long-standing behaviors lifestyle behaviors they they want to uh, reduce or cease substance use often they are keen to um, separate from partners that might be violent things like that and instead of the nurturing care and support that they are seeking from the, either the healthcare system or sometimes from their families and informal supports as well, what they receive is extra monitoring and surveillance and prejudice and judgment and services or family members that take over the parenting role for them um, and, uh, yeah, and, and kind of have this disciplinarian sort of approach rather than a, a supportive um, resourcing and nurturing um, approach. And do you find, Rochelle, that that's in in our country those kinds of issues are are sort of confounded or blended into issues for people of color? So our yeah. families are even more um, observed, yeah, <laughs> or, or um, surveilled or whatever. And I'm wondering. I know you've done a lot of work around those issues of culture and particularly with Indigenous families. Is the same true in Australia? Absolutely it is. And in fact, um, when when we take out all of the other variables that might be um, some of those social determinants that Scott mentioned that are impacting on the family, just being from a First Nations background in Australia is enough to increase the, the likelihood of child protection intervention. So, um, and, and also we're talking about you know, the criminal justice system as well. So in Australia, uh, the estimated um, population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is about 3.8% of the population. Um, and the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners account for um, 32% of all prisoners. So that's from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, and the uh, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare um, have found that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are eight times more likely to be involved with the child protection system. And, um, and unsurprisingly, three in ten Indigenous Australians report having um, high or very high psychological distress. And it's no wonder it's just those, <laughs> those statistics of so many members of families who are incarcerated and children, that, that um, intergenerational cycle of child, children being removed from their family's care, um, as well as all of the other compounding factors. That's great, yeah. Michelle, that you've got all those numbers at your fingertips. I think they're exactly the same in Canada. 
exactly the same. And I think that there's been really interesting work starting to be done by First Nations people in Canada themselves, you know. So um, interested in exploring the stats and the numbers from their own perspective to look at the effects mm -hmm. of colonization. Um, so colonization playing a huge role in carceral, uh, in carceral systems. Um, so if you just think about the numbers, if that many parents are incarcerated, we know that many children are also living with parents who are experiencing intersectional aspects of, of, of what we're talking about. So in some ways, I find the social determinants of health a little bit weak as a concept these days because it really doesn't get at some of the issues that we're talking about, racialization, um, you know, racial discri discrimination from Indigenous and Black and, and uh, other racialized people. You know, so I think that's actually problematic. Mm, there's a, there's that, different different lists of the social determinants, or um, uh, I've I've started calling them the social drivers of um, mm -hmm. social and economic drivers of health outcomes because determinants seems like they're predetermined and there's nothing we can do about them, but they're actually yeah. all changeable, aren't they? But um, yeah, in in some of the Australian lists of what the drivers are, um racism and homophobia and sexism gender are all included as as um, as drivers as well yep yeah. and it takes us back i think a little bit to some i know as a group we've talked about this and our wider research group have talked about this and even our own struggles around what to call the problem you know like we struggled around is it an illness from a biomedical perspective is it a is it is it environmental and social in the ways that we're talking about what exactly is the problem and how it's named and framed and therefore studied actually has a huge impact on how we understand it i think we're we're kind of walking around some of that right now in this discussion um and i think you know we've we've struggled as a group i know even in recent work that we've done for publication around you know, making, ensuring that we call, we talk about mental health challenges rather than just using illness. And yet the the problem becomes then how do we support people within a biomedical system that insists on certain language being used? So, you know, there are certain, there are really interesting issues for me around language and how we, and how we think about the problem. I remember I had a professor when I was doing my PhD who always said to me, what's the nature of the suffering? If you can understand the nature of the suffering, you can start to think about where the change needs to happen. And I always try to remember that when I interview children and young people around their experiences uh, to hear what they think the nature of the suffering is, as opposed to what I assume it to be coming in as both an adult and someone who's kind of inculcated in systems of care uh, that speak about things in a particular way. So I think it's, uh, I think it's also interesting to think about our language but that does suggest that a mental health condition, that someone suffers from a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. And we certainly have worked with and talked with people who are not necessarily suffering, if, yeah, if but, I mean. Sorry, Joanne, I meant the nature of the suffering. The suffering might be discrimination. It might be stigma. Mm -hmm. It might be. So the nature of the suffering isn't to do yeah. with the so-called condition. Exactly. It, exactly. This is the whole point of why that question I find so interesting. Exactly. You know? Yeah, because it does speak to the social context. It speaks to the contingencies yeah. operating in a person's yeah. life. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So for kids that I've worked with, a lot of times they want, you know, I, I, I examined a psychoeducation as a peer support group for kids. 
And they, despite the facilitator's insistence that the kids learn to call it an illness, they insisted on the word difference. Because the word difference for them is what was the nature of their suffering. The fact that their parents were seen as different, the fact that their families were conceived of as different. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea that difference mattered to them couldn't be um, taken up and considered by the adults in the room because there was an assistance on a different kind of language for describing the nature of the suffering. So, you know, I think that's kind of an, always has stayed with me as a really interesting example. Of, that's a um, great example. And I also, yeah. you know, in, in some ways, the problem in the U.S. is the underlying business model that yeah. you have to be assigned a diagnosis so that yes. the insurance company will pay Absolutely. for uh, the treatment. And so in a way, it's it's a business model that sort of yeah. underlies our focus on diagnosis and yeah. and the brain or whatever, rather yeah. than thinking about some of these health-related social needs exactly. or, or, or the true source of the suffering. And where change might happen. Exactly. To happen. Yeah. I think that's true in Canada too, Joanne. I think that's true in Canada as well. Yeah. You know, I think we encounter in the UK particularly the very quite a very often services with a, a, a narrow target driven agenda and bis business models come into it even though we're talking about publicly delivered services quite often even if they might be outsourced within local authority models and things um, is that um, you you have to get quantifiable outcomes for specific problems to claim that you've had an impact and then you get to, you know payment by results in, in in configurations of services. We have notions of turning families' lives around. You can tick off various things in a checkbox. These are isolated outcomes, like gaining employment or stopping antisocial behaviour or, or you know things like this. So we have all of the, we have a lot of services who are um, and we've worked with quite a lot of them. Then attached to families where this I think distress suffering is kind of what we're interested in, isn't it? You know where this kind of distress uh, from various sources is is going on and. Um, that, that they can then go in with a specific, quite narrow target driven. It's about Im improving this kid's behavior at school. It's about getting them to go to school. It's about making making sure the parent gets a job. And that's what they then get paid for by results. When we work with services like this and we say, but OK, on your caseload, you know, where family mental health challenges, parent mental health challenges, you know, what kind of caseload and every server we've worked with, I think, you know, hundreds now, everyone says, well, nearly all of them, you know, nearly all of them have this kind of background of stress. But of course, this it's not identified, not picked up. The diagnosis isn't particularly important because they know that the distress is going on. But that's not what they then get there to do. Everyone's chipping away at these little isolated quantifiable things for different services and the needs for support and for and for understanding the context within that, within which that happens, isn't isn't there. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's frustrating, I think, sometimes to deal with when you, you, you talk to services and you say so you've had you, you talk about the the, the kind of um, the route through of, of a family and this 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 distress and this series of stresses has been in the background. But then a service can be there to go, well, I'm just there to get the kids to go back to school, you know, and then what happens? OK, you tick that off. And then what happens? You know, you haven't solved the, that, the problem. Yeah. The way that you define suffering, you know, using Brenda's concept of that also suggests w that there are differences in the way we define success. And so, Scott, per your point, success from the perspective of the funder or the insurance company or the business model is clicking off the boxes, but that may not be how our families define success, no. um, much in the way that they have different notions about what suffering is. Yeah, we tend to impose, I think, on families a notion of success or recovery. There's almost this idea of, well, well, recovery for you will mean you don't have your symptoms anymore. 
you know, or your symptoms are, are, are reduced on this kind of clinical scale. Right, because we can measure that. Yeah, yeah. But when you talk to families and this kind of notion of what they want in terms of moving forward with lives and recovery, that actually doesn't figure as highly. And there's quite a bit of research now around recovery in families. And, you know, you know, I know that we're all kind of uh, involved in that here as well. And it's so there's that frustration and it doesn't line up with, I think, the needs for support and challenges and the, 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 the complexity of that background and what we're actually picking up and attending to when we're, when we're thinking of these families. Yeah. It just really illustrates the need for uh, a lot more lived experience expertise in, in policy and program development, doesn't it? I think, mm. you know, if we used um, high-quality co-design methodology more often um, instead of just talking about it, <laughs> then, uh, you know, we might actually get somewhere in, in um, addressing the source of the suffering. It also suggests that researchers themselves need to be willing to acknowledge their own challenges, to be perfectly honest. I mean, there are four of us here in this Zoom box or Teams box, and <laughs> over the course of our lifetimes, at least one of us will be struggling with a mental health challenge. And so, you know, it means that we also have to break down this notion of researcher as this objective, academic, you know, ivory tower kind of person. And Think of even ourselves uh, and our own lived experience and the role that that lived experience plays in the questions we address and the ways that we address them. Yeah. I've been um, th thinking with students more recently about um, there's different ways to talk about this, but I think another interesting idea is in terms of research, why don't we study up? Like, why don't we study the people who and the systems that are creating this kind of suffering. So we tend to, you know, and I'm all for lived experience, absolutely co-design, absolutely. And I think what you said, Joanne, is really, really important in qualitative where we talk about reflexive practices. So, you know, we have to think about, you know, our own impact on the research and, and, and what that might mean, even in how we define a problem as a problem. But more recently, I've been challenged by students who come in to study for doctoral programs and they're asking questions like, why aren't we studying the politics and the politicians and the systems and the health professions and the, you know, all and the, and the legal uh, profession and the players in the legal profession to find out more about the other side of this, you know? So I think that's an interesting challenge to all of us. Why we're not doing that kind of work more often. Yeah. And we know, for example, that stigma, I think we know, whoever the we is, I think we know that stigma is rife in the health professions, right? That one of the greatest sources of stigma for families and all mm -hmm. kinds of other people who are uh, suffering and suffering from mental health challenges as well um, is often the stigma that comes at them through the professions, so, you can throw legal into that too. You can throw what into that, Joanne? The legal profession. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. But we don't really study. I mean, there's a the phrase "studying up" is kind of awkward, but you know what I mean. We don't study elites, so-called elites, in that sense. And I wonder if partially that's because that's us. We don't study ourselves and the implications of that for how we understand knowledge and knowledge production. That's a very oh, anyway. there, is, there is research, isn't there, showing um, negative experience, stigmatizing experiences families have had with services. Yeah, um, it's it's a 
it's a you know when we work it's a routine kind of pretty much every family will have had a story you know and every professional yeah. who works with a family will have had a story I'd be asked, you know that this way that the family felt judged stigmatized devalued marginalized um trained by services but yeah then yeah maybe we don't look at like, what is the process going on within the configuration yeah. of those yeah. services mm. which is generating this yeah yeah, yeah in fact, really uh, you go ahead Rochelle sorry <laughs> I, I said yeah I, I love that idea one one of the things that um I'm working on with a with uh, some Aboriginal or First Nations organisations in Australia is um, studies of whiteness in uh, perinatal settings. So looking at um, yeah white privilege, white guilt, white fragility, and how that kind of manifests in in the workplace for people and how it influences their interactions with First Nations families. Um, really so, interesting. Yeah, really um, interesting. Really we want to hear more about that when you're ready. <laughs> yeah yeah not I mean I think there's that's one layer I guess the the practitioners that are in those spaces and that and their um control and influence over the environment is also limited but um yeah I think there's a lot more to doing that work as well yeah politicians yeah, and, I, and I think in, in we don't want to say that it's you know it's not a matter of getting rid of of whiteness per se right it's the idea yeah. that people themselves who are within that, and I mean, I'm a white person, right? Subject to the same kind of um, thinking about uh, ex white exceptionalism as someone who's not white. So I'm part of that system, but also affected and shaped by that system of thinking. So, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So I think there's lots of interesting uh, ideas. It's just that. about making, making our culture visible. Because yes. other, we're always othering anyone who's yes. not white, so we need to turn the lens onto ourselves yeah. and say, well, how does, how does our culture and our social conditioning influence how we are and, and impact on other people? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like a, to throw a, in sorry. in the U.S. Oh, sorry, Scott. No, no, you go. You I'd like to throw in a criminal justice system pitch, since uh, we're meant to be talking about that as well. You know, in the in the U.S., the criminal justice system has become tacitly or overtly the place where people with mental illness end up. Mm -hmm. uh, majority of people in criminal justice, in the U.S. criminal justice system, either entering with mental health problems or <laughs> developing mental health problems. And, and there has been some attention focused on this notion of trauma and re-traumatization, both in the mental health system uh, and in the criminal justice system, and what our professionals are doing in their work with people, um, particularly around things like seclusion and restraint. Or in, in the criminal justice system, where the theme is punishment, of course, you think about seclusion as an appropriate thing to do for someone who's been bad. In the inpatient psychiatry setting, um, the use of seclusion and restraint is often linked to sort of managing people. And so I just want to make the pitch for including our criminal justice professionals and um, a focus on criminal justice and our thinking about how we treat people mm -hmm. and how we expect people to respond and the impact that we have in the way that we treat people. Um, and in fact, sometimes that makes things worse rather than better. 
I don't know if that's true. I suspect that's probably true in criminal justice system in other countries. I'm not as familiar with that, but I know in the U.S., the mental health, untreated unmet mental health needs are huge in the criminal justice system. We actually have several fairly innovative uh, programs emerging, both in our, our Medicaid system, which is our public you know, health care system, focusing on the reentry of uh, people into the community as they leave the criminal justice system. And so uh, in Massachusetts, for example, we're looking at strategies for community engagement and reentry for people leaving criminal justice settings. There's also been or is some ongoing work on uh, black women in particular, women of color, uh, who oftentimes are mothers uh, leaving criminal justice and re-entering their families and their communities. So there's some really interesting and exciting opportunities to hopefully treat and support people better who may have been, in fact, mistreated in the settings that were supposed to cure them or treat them. Yeah, I think the aware the awareness of those issues and the and the, the complexity of the impact and how that 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 multitude of systems of distressing um, and stresses um, can impact on people is is really important. We we in, in the UK we have these we also have um, yes issues of unmet mental health needs a significant issue in people who have contact with criminal justice systems and drives to try to. Um, have some forms of early intervention um, with children and young people so that you, they can be, you know, the, the, the framing is that they're diverted into kind of positive activities and that mental health is is kind of addressed early on before it then becomes a problem. But I think, you know, the, the, the issues that we're talking about, how you actually conceptualise and address the environment and the, the, distru- the, the distressing experiences for those children, young people and their families is much broader than just something like a, a, a kind of um, some sort of intrapsychic kind of experience of the mental illness that lives in their head. Um, we're talking about, you know, this idea that you have a um, and, and I think it was the, the UK epidemiologist. I think it was I might hope I'm not misattributed to, to, to Sir Michael Marmot. But when we when we have environments that essentially make people sick. He's talking about mental health and physical health. You know, you, we don't necessarily think you can simply cure the disease and send people back to an environment that, that makes them sick. You know, I know whether we're talking about sick or not, this idea that um, we, we know there is this, I think this impetus to understand the set of experiences and understanding is important. One of the, you know, the, the things that we keep hearing that when research in the, in the UK with, um, uh, with people who've grown up as young carers for parents with mental health challenges is this thing of just um, not being listened to, and Brenda, of course, this is very resonant with your work, mm-hmm. you know, as well in Canada. And uh, yeah. uh, you know, and we, I, I, I kind of often use when I'm kind of doing work with teachers in schools, um, the, the the shock that um, uh, a, a family support worker like, reacted when they when they they told us of a, a child who ter- who just turned 18 while they were in contact with them, and suddenly realizing nobody in this child's entire life had ever. I tried to understand what their experience was like of, of living in the environment that they did with with the you know the complexity of issues around the family, which included fundamental health challenges. Um, and this, of course, is a very common experience that it simply isn't that 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 just isn't taken taken account of. And we have all these services where we want to do things like divert and kind of engage, and and yet I think this is still one of those issues where we're just not thinking, you know, in 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 those ways. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I can't say, you know, I've been at this now for over 20 years, maybe even longer. 
um, and can't say in my own setting that things have changed dramatically for families, for parents, and certainly for children in terms of being heard and listened to and asked about their experiences uh, in the context that we're talking about today, uh, parental mental health and, and, and challenges that can ensue from that. Um, but I keep on, and uh, you know, there's this um, there's this Irish uh, scholar whose name is going to escape me for the moment, who's done incredible work around the notion of children's rights. So when we were speaking really a lot earlier in this in this talk about the notion of every culture is different, every nation has its own culture, et cetera, to a point that's okay. But there is this notion of rights that perhaps we need to think about that 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 supersedes all of that notion of, well, it's just an individual culture. Ah, well, it's just that country. Do children have, and to what extent do children have rights that are human rights um, to speak and to be heard? And so this Irish scholar whose name is escaping me has done incredible work around, you know, um, uh, how not, she talks a lot about it in research, but I think it can be something that can be extrapolated to other uh, settings and um, ways of thinking that um, we need to provide children with the opportunity to speak, but we also need to listen and hear. And she has two other, there's two other dimensions to her model. But um, so I, my work has started out sort of underpinned by some of this notion of children's rights. Um, and I think it lives in tension with this notion of parental rights, right? So, and we see that conflict, right? We're seeing that conflict in the politics of certain countries right now about, you know, the family, keeping the family, you know, this notion of um, political notion of the uh, family values and parental rights superseding children's rights. And those are tensions I don't know that we can easily resolve um, because I think, you know, the idea that a family is, inter children love their families, they love their parents, that's been my experience, they want to be in relation with their parents, primarily, not always, and they need support to do that, right? But the problem then becomes how to protect children's rights to speak and to be heard and not run into the conflict that somehow you're diminishing the, the parents' rights to also have a say. So I think there's a tension in our field that's always been there and continues to be there. Um, and I was just, you made me think about that, Scott, in terms of thinking about my own work, which has been mostly in trying to get researchers to think about including children in research and, you know, in a, in a very profound way so that we hear what they have to say. But I'm, yeah. Sorry, that's it. That's a, that's a, I think that's a really good um, uh, reflection. We are, well, and I just know we're coming up to the hour mark, which has gone really quickly. Um, has, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's been <laughs> really nice, really nice time of talking with you all. Um, and I think we're an hour is kind of the time we're we're, we're kind of wanted to to keep to for the podcast if we can. So, I guess any final reflections or messages would be um, would be a good time to kind of move to those maybe. Or maybe we've covered everything. We you stumped we, us we, now. You so, stumped so us, Scott. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ending, endings are difficult, aren't they? It's kind of, yeah. <laughs> These are complex issues that you're. Yeah. I mean, we certainly have covered the notion of culture and context and race and rights and development over time and multi generational issues. Um, 
And I think an important thing that we've talked about is how, how or where to target our efforts to make change happen, to support change ha- happening for families, for them to achieve the goals they set uh, and to address the problems or suffering they define. And I think the point about listening and hearing that we have all made is really, really an important bottom line point that under underscores all of the things we've talked about. Thanks. Well, I, um, thanks ever so much to everyone for, for taking part. It's been really, really interesting and really um, uh, enjoyable to, to chat with you. Um, and uh, I think I think it was a, I think it's a useful a useful message as well to, to, to kind of contribute. So thank you very much. Thank you, Scott, for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for inviting. <clears throat> Great seeing you all. Yeah. You have been listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. To find out more, go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.